Section 44 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1D, Section 44, Appendix 3, Part 3. It is difficult to compute exactly the Queen's ordinary revenue, but it certainly fell much short of five hundred thousand pounds a year. In the year 1590, she raised the customs from fourteen thousand pounds a year to fifty thousand, and obliged Sir Thomas Smith, who had farmed them, to refund some of his former profits. This improvement of the revenue was owing to the suggestions of one Carmarthen, and was opposed by Burley, Leicester, and Walsingham. But the Queen's perseverance overcame all their opposition. The great undertakings which she executed with so narrow a revenue and with such small supplies from her people prove the mighty effects of wisdom and economy. She received from the Parliament during the course of her whole reign only twenty subsidies and thirty-nine fifteenths. I pretend not to determine exactly the amount of these supplies because the value of a subsidy was continually falling, and in the end of her reign it amounted only to eighty thousand pounds, though in the beginning it had been a hundred and twenty thousand. If we suppose that the supplies granted Elizabeth during a reign of forty-five years amounted to three millions, we shall not probably be much wide of the truth. This sum makes only sixty-six thousand six hundred and sixty-six pounds a year, and it is surprising that while the Queen's demands were so moderate and her expenses so well regulated, she should ever have found any difficulty in obtaining a supply from Parliament or be reduced to make sale of Crown lands. But such was the extreme, I had almost said, absurd parsimony of the Parliaments during that period. They valued nothing in comparison of their money. The members had no connection with the court, and the very idea which they conceived of the trust committed to them was to reduce the demands of the crown and to grant as few supplies as possible. The crown, on the other hand, conceived the parliament in no other light than as a means of supply. Queen Elizabeth made a merit to her people of seldom summoning parliaments. No redress of grievances was expected from these assemblies. They were supposed to meet for no other purpose than to impose taxes. Before the reign of Elizabeth, the English princes had usually recourse to the city of Antwerp for voluntary loans, and their credit was so low that, besides paying the high interest of 10 or 12 percent, they were obliged to make the city of London join in the security. Sir Thomas Gresham, that great and enterprising merchant, one of the chief ornaments of this reign, engaged the company of merchant adventurers to grant a loan to the queen, and as the money was regularly repaid, her credit by degrees established itself in the city, and she shook off this dependence on foreigners. In the year 1559, however, the queen employed Gresham to borrow for her 200,000 pounds at Antwerp in order to enable her to reform the coin, 
which was at that time extremely debased she was so impolitic as to make herself an innovation in the coin by dividing a pound of silver into sixty-two shillings instead of sixty the former standard this is the last time the coin has been tampered with in england queen elizabeth sensible how much the defence of her kingdom depended on its naval power was desirous to encourage commerce and navigation but as her monopolies tended to extinguish all domestic industry which is much more valuable than foreign trade and is the foundation of it the general train of her conduct was ill calculated to serve the purpose at which she aimed much less to promote the riches of her people the exclusive companies also were an immediate check on foreign trade yet notwithstanding these discouragements the spirit of the age was strongly bent on naval enterprises and besides the military expeditions against the spaniards many attempts were made for new discoveries and many new branches of foreign commerce were opened by the english sir martin frobisher undertook three fruitless voyages to discover the northwest passage davis not discouraged by this ill success made a new attempt when he discovered the strait which passed by his name in the year sixteen hundred the queen granted the first patent to the east india company the stock of that company was seventy two thousand pounds and they fitted out four ships under the command of james lancaster for this new branch of trade the adventure was successful and the ships returning with a rich cargo encouraged the company to continue the commerce the communication with muscovy had been opened in queen mary's time by the discovery of the passage to archangel but the commerce to that country did not begin to be carried out in a great extent till about the year fifteen sixty nine the queen obtained from the czar an exclusive patent to the english for the whole trade of muscovy and she entered into a personal as well as national alliance with him this czar was named john basalides a furious tyrant who continually suspecting the revolt of his subjects stipulated to have a safe retreat and protection in england in order the better to ensure this resource he proposed to marry an englishwoman and the queen intended to have sent him lady anne hastings daughter of the earl of huntington but when the lady was informed of the barbarous manners of the country she wisely declined purchasing an empire at the expense of her ease and safety the english encouraged by the privileges which they had obtained from facilities ventured farther into those countries than any europeans had formerly done they transported their goods along the river dinwa in boats made of one entire tree which they towed and rowed up the stream as far as walgota thence they carried their commodities seven days journey by land to yersula and then down the volga to astrakhan at astrakhan they built ships crossed the caspian sea and distributed their manufactures into persia but this bold attempt met with such discouragements that it was never renewed after the death of john Basilides, his son theodore revoked the patent which the english enjoyed for a monopoly of the russian trade when the queen remonstrated against this innovation he told her ministers that 
princes must carry an indifferent hand as well between their subjects as between foreigners and not convert trade which by the laws of nations ought to be common to all into a monopoly for the private gain of a few so much juster notions of commerce were entertained by this barbarian than appear in the conduct of the renowned queen elizabeth theodore however continued some privileges to the english on account of their being the discoverers of the communications between Europe and his country. The trade to Turkey commenced about the year 1583, and that commerce was immediately confined to a company by Queen Elizabeth. Before that time, the Grand Seigneur had always conceived England to be a dependent province of France, but having heard of the Queen's power and reputation, he gave a good reception to the English and even granted them larger privileges than he had given to the French. The merchants of the Hansi towns complained loudly in the beginning of Elizabeth's reign of the treatment which they had received in the reigns of Edward and Mary. She prudently replied that as she would not innovate anything, she would still protect them in the immunities and privileges of which she found them possessed. This answer not contenting them, their commerce was soon after suspended for a time to the great advantage of the English merchants, who tried what they could themselves effect for promoting their commerce. They took the whole trade into their own hands, and their returns proving successful, they divided themselves into staplers and merchant adventurers, the former residing constantly at one place, the latter trying their fortunes in other towns and states abroad with cloth and other manufacturers. This success so enraged the Hansi towns that they tried all the methods which a discontented people could devise to draw upon the English merchants the ill opinion of other nations and states. They prevailed so far as to obtain an imperial edict by which the English were prohibited all commerce in the empire. The queen, by way of retaliation, retained sixty of their ships, which had been seized in the river Tagus, with contraband goods of the Spaniards. These ships the queen intended to have restored, as desiring to have compromised all differences with those trading cities. But when she was informed that a great assembly was held at Lubeck, in order to concert measures for distressing the English trade, she caused the ships and cargoes to be confiscated. Only two of them were released to carry home the news, and to inform these states that she had the greatest contempt imaginable for all their proceedings. Henry the Eighth, in order to fit out a navy, was obliged to hire ships from Hamburg, Lubeck, Danzig, Genoa, and Venice. But Elizabeth, very early in her reign, put affairs upon a better footing, both by building some ships of her own and by encouraging the merchants to build large trading vessels, which on occasion were converted into ships of war. In the year 1582, the seamen in England were found to be 14,295 men, the number of vessels 1,232, of which there were only 217 above 80 tons. Monson pretends that though navigation decayed in the first years of James I by the practice of the merchants who carried on their trade in foreign bottoms, yet before the year 1640, this number of seamen was tripled in England. The navy which the queen left at her decease appears considerable, 
when we reflect only on the number of vessels, which were 42, but when we consider that none of these ships carried above 40 guns, and that four only came up to that number, that there were but two ships of a thousand tons, and 23 below 500, some of 50, and some even 20 tons, and that the whole number of guns belonging to the fleet was 774, we must entertain a contemptible idea of the English navy, compared to the force which it has now attained. In the year 1588, there were not above five vessels fitted out by the noblemen and seaports, which exceeded 200 tons. In the year 1575, all the militia in the kingdom were computed at a hundred and eighty-two thousand nine hundred and twenty-nine. A distribution was made in the year 1595 of a hundred and forty thousand men, besides those which Wales could supply. These armies were formidable by their numbers, but their discipline and experience were not proportionate. Small bodies from Dunkirk and Newport frequently ran over and plundered the east coast. So unfit was the militia, as it was then constituted, for the defense of the kingdom. The Lord Lieutenants were first appointed to the counties in this reign. Mr. Murden has published from the Salisbury Collection a paper which contains the military force of the nation at the time of the Spanish Armada, and which is somewhat different from the account given by our ordinary historians. It makes all the able-bodied men of the kingdom amount to a hundred and eleven thousand five hundred and thirteen. Those armed to eighty thousand eight hundred and seventy-five, of whom forty thousand seven hundred and twenty-seven were trained. It must be supposed that these able-bodied men consisted of such only as were registered, otherwise the small number is not to be accounted for. Yet Sir Edward Coke said in the House of Commons, that he was employed about the same time, together with Poppenham, Chief Justice, to take a survey of all the people of England, and that they found them to be 900,000 of all sorts. This number, by the ordinary rules of computation, supposes that there were above 200,000 men able to bear arms, yet even this number is surprisingly small. Can we suppose that the kingdom is six or seven times more populous at present, and that Murden's was the real number of men, excluding Catholics and children and infirm persons. Harrison says that in the musters taken in the year 1574 and 1575, the men fit for service amounted to 1,172,674, yet was it believed that a full third was admitted. Such uncertainty and contradiction are there in all these accounts. Notwithstanding the greatness of this number, the same author complains much of the decay of the populousness, a vulgar complaint in all places and all ages. Guicciardini makes the inhabitants of England in this reign amount to two million. Whatever opinion we may form of the comparative populousness of England in different periods, it must be allowed that, abstracting from the national debt, there is a prodigious increase of power in that, more perhaps than in any other European state, since the beginning of the last century. It would be no paradox to affirm that Ireland alone could, at present, exert a greater force than all the three kingdoms were capable of 
at the death of Queen Elizabeth. We might go further and assert that one good county in England is able to make, at least to support, a greater effort than the whole kingdom was capable of in the reign of Henry V, when the maintenance of a garrison in a small town like Calais formed more than a third of the ordinary national expense. Such are the effects of liberty, industry, and good government. The state of the English manufacturers was at this time very low, and foreign wares of almost all kinds had preference. About the year 1590, there were in London four persons only, rated in the subsidy books so high as 400 pounds. This computation is not indeed to be deemed an extract estimate of their wealth. In 1567, there were found, on inquiry, to be 4,851 strangers of all nations in London, of whom 3,838 were Flemings and only 58 Scots. The persecution in France and the Low Countries drove afterwards a greater number of foreigners into England, and the commerce, as well as manufactures of that kingdom, was very much improved by them. It was then that Sir Thomas Gresham built, at his own charge, the magnificent fabric of the exchange for the reception of the merchants. The queen visited it and gave it the appellation of the Royal Exchange. By a lucky accident in language, which has a great effect on men's ideas, the invidious word usury, which formerly meant the taking of any interest for money, came now to express only the taking of exorbitant and illegal interest. An act passed in 1571 violently condemns all usury, but permits 10% interest to be paid. Henry IV of France reduced interest to 6.5%, an indication of the great advance of France above England in commerce. Dr. Howell says that Queen Elizabeth, in the third of her reign, was presented with a pair of black silk knit stockings by her silk woman, and never wore cloth hose any more. The author of The Present State of England says that about 1577, pocket watches were first brought into England from Germany. They are thought to have been invented at Nuremberg. About 1580, the use of coaches was introduced by the Earl of Arundel. Before that time, the Queen, on public occasions, rode behind her chamberlain. Camden says that in 1581, Randolph, so much employed by the Queen in foreign embassies, possessed the office of Postmaster General of England. It appears, therefore, that posts were then established, though from Charles I's regulations in 1635 it would seem that few post-houses were erected before that time. In a remonstrance of the Hansi towns to the Diet of the Empire, in 1582, it is affirmed that England exported annually about 200,000 pieces of cloth. This number seems to be much exaggerated. In the fifth of this reign, was enacted the first law for the relief of the poor. A judicious author of that age confirms the vulgar observation that the kingdom was depopulating from the increase of enclosures and decay of tillage, and he ascribes the reason very justly to the restraints put on the exportation of corn, while full liberty was allowed to export all the produce of pasturage, such as wool, hides, leather, and tallow, etc., 
these prohibitions of exportation were derived from the prerogative and were very injudicious the queen once on the commencement of her reign had tried a contrary practice and with good success from the same author we learn that the complaints renewed in our time were then very uncommon concerning the high prices of everything there were two attempts made in this reign to settle colonies in america one by sir humphrey gilbert in newfoundland another by sir walter raleigh in virginia but neither of these projects proved successful all those noble settlements were made in the following reigns the current specie of the kingdom in the end of this reign is computed at four millions the earl of leicester desired sir francis wallingham then ambassador to france to provide him with a writing master in that country to whom he promises a hundred pounds a year besides maintaining himself and servant and a couple of horses i know adds the earl that such a man as i want may receive higher wages in france but let him consider that a shilling in england goes as far as two shillings in france it is known that everything is much changed since that time the nobility of this age still supported in some degree the ancient magnificence in their hospitality and in the number of their retainers and the queen found it prudent to retrench by proclamation their expenses in this particular the expense of hospitality she somewhat encouraged by the frequent visits she paid her nobility and the sumptuous feasts which she received from them end of section forty four appendix three part three recording by richard carpenter in seattle washington